0: Welcome to Fintech Insider News, your weekly go-to podcast for all things fintech and financial services. We've been downloaded now in more than 160 countries and consistently at the top of the business categories on iTunes. Thank you very much for everything and all of those downloads. It really makes a difference to us. We're brought to you by the folks at 11FS. We believe that digital banking is only 1% finished and we are here for the next 99%. And really exciting news, we turned one years old today, which is an amazing feat. I can't believe we quite made it, and I'll be honest with you, with this hangover, I can't believe I'm making it through this as well. I'm David Breer, and we're recording up here in Level 39 in London, the heart of fintech. Joining me from 11FS, we have Simon Taylor. Simon, say hey. Hello. And this week, for the first time as an 11FS person, we have Andrea Sonia. Andrea, say hello.
1: Hi, happy to be here.
0: Jason is taking some much-deserved snowboarding holiday with his family and Chris, our favourite fintech ambassador, I feel like we need some sort of salute for that every time we do it, is off in Argentina and Brazil. Uh, He did, however, send us a little audio podcast, so over to Chris. Hello? Hello? Is this
2: on? Oh, okay. Well, welcome. My name is Chris Skinner. And in my new weekly spot as Global Ambassador for Innovate Finance, Fintech Insiders have kindly given me five minutes to tell you about what the ambassador saw. It's like what the butler saw, but not nearly as interesting because it's just really about technology and banking and financial services. But that's how it goes on Fintech Insiders, I guess. Anyway, um, I'm going to be reporting weekly from wherever I am in the world, telling you what I've seen. And this week, I'm in Latin America, in Brazil and Argentina, which is fantastic. And uh, I came here back in 1992 was the first time. And it was very different back then in that, um, you know, there was lots of signs graffiti around the Buenos Aires saying, Los Maldivas son Argentinos. Uh, which translates into the Falkland Islands are Argentinian, which are obviously they're not the part of the British Empire, just as we are building through Innovate Finance the British Empire of FinTech, which I think is wonderful. And as an ambassador, I'm going to be highly diplomatic and you know, drinking and sniffing things with the elite around the world, rather than sitting in a boring old studio in level 39 talking about technology and finance news. Having said that, I do need to give you some technology and finance news because Jolly den ho! We've got the Brexit discussions continuing non-stop, but the latest one, which I was very pleased to see, is our good friend Jamie Dimon, one of the. Ex colony leaders. Um, actually, he leads a bank called JP Morgan, again, part of the old empire. And, um, he is saying that the, after Brexit, they're not going to move any of their jobs because they can effectively serve all the European Union through their outsourcing center in London. I love this idea of London being the nearshore offshore center for European financial services. But it is funny that before the Brexit vote, you know, this, Jamie Demon Chappie, who's the chief executive of the bank, said that thousands of people will be moving out of London um, within his company, 16,000 jobs, in fact, and now not one. Huh. Jolly D, I do love the way in which we can be so consistent in our view of the world. Having said that, yesterday I was in Brazil and um, being uh, entertained by lots of salsa, samba and, you know, sugar loaves and things. And um, as I came across the bridge into Argentina, I thought, well, that's the ambassador leaving Brazil, so I call that a real Brexit. Anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, Next week, I will be in Pakistan. I would love to be joining you in the Innovate Finance Global Summit, but as a global fintech ambassador. I have to go around the world, basically being entertained in um, low places. Anyway, I shall talk to you next week. Toodle pip! Have a lovely time.
0: Great, and thanks for that, Chris. Can't wait to hear your next dispatch from your travels. One more thing, just to give you guys a heads up, there is no news next week. We're sorry to disappoint, but we're going to be taking a little bit of a spring holiday break. Uh, Instead, on Monday, you'll be hearing an excellent interview with our friend Alessandro Hatamai, managing partner at the Pacemakers, and I think that's probably the first time I've said his name right that I ever... No, still said it wrong? Sorry, Alessandro. I'll keep trying. An army of hats, man. Just think an
3: army of hats. Hat army. (laughs) <laughs> Indeed. I keep getting it wrong. <laughs> anyway,
0: on with the news. Uh, today we have some excellent guests again. We have Richard Morgans, who is head of Digital Lab and Fintech Ecosystems at TSB. Say hey, Rich. Hey, Rich. Nice. Old joke. Keeps coming back. And um, we have Misha Jessel Kenyon. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Wow. Nailed it first time. Publishing manager at Raconteur. Say hey. Hi. Hi. Uh, And back we have Ali Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of Fintech and Finance. Say hey, Ali. Hey, Ali. And on with the news. So first up in the news, we have a piece on Reuters. So this is the financial institutions risk 24% of revenue loss from fintech. And this is according to PwC. What do we think of this one? Well,
3: I think PwC would like to sell some work in their consultancy practice, obviously. But (laughs) um, aside from that, this is one of those where a consultancy goes out and interviews a whole bunch of people and they say something that you'd expect them to say. So 88% of respondents who are senior executives in banks came back and said that, yes, we think that FinTech is going to have a material impact on us. And 82% of executives that were interviewed said they, they plan to combat that by collaborating more with fintech, which is kind of like, okay, so fintech is going to disrupt us and we're going to solve this by collaborating with fintech. It's a bit circular and it's kind of the same old answer. Mm. What happens to we're actually going to transform our business? We're actually going to get capable in a digital age. There's kind of a missing story here that between the collaborating with fintech and $2 billion on digital transformation that's kind of end product that feels like it's missing for me. But it is a good sign that at least minds are now concentrated and pointing in the right direction. So overall, I'm, I'm actually broadly encouraged. I don't know what you guys think.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's a story that's been heard quite a few times before, and it's not used in in the first instance, to say, oh, people are scared and they think revenue is going to be lost. Uh, but particularly in this instance, we, we look to say, okay, what is that going to look like? I think that's more interesting to say, what would it look like, the new revenue model? And actually, are banks going to give up their revenue from these uh, from these particular financial services that easy? Or are they going to fight for it?
0: I, I think it's interesting because this idea that the Going to befriend the thing that's a threat to them in a way of sort of trying to disarm the thing that's a threat to them, isn't the? Isn't that like the statistic that sort of ninety-five percent of people who are killed know their killers? Like uh, you know, arguably you're better off not knowing it, really. At least when the uh, the bus hits you from nowhere, you've got no idea, right? But uh, it's uh, an interesting one that they're sort of moving to disarm them with kindness.
3: Uh, there's an, a point in the article as well that um, they expect most of the loss will come in the personal loans area. Uh, which is quite interesting because like, lending is one of the biggest revenue lines for, for most banks. It's a key revenue line. So this is core business stuff that you're starting to lose in, in the personal side of, of banking. Uh, so it says to me that uh, perhaps it's time for banks to think where they want to collaborate and where they want to compete because saying we're going to collaborate with fintech isn't enough. We're going to collaborate with fintech in these areas and in these other areas, we're going to get really, really good and agile and fast and launch new products. Or, and, and I haven't heard that strategy uh, really clearly articulated yet. I'm sure it's out there, but I, I personally haven't heard it. So, this PwC article is definitely significant. And I spoke to Anna Herrera at Reuters uh, about the story. Okay, so I'm here with Anna Herrera, who works for Reuters. Anna, good to have you back on FinTech Insider.
5: Hi, thank you for having me.
3: Thanks for being with us. So you had a story this week about a story from PwC saying that uh, they had a survey, I believe, saying that uh, 24% of banking revenues could be at risk from fintech. Uh, what, what's the story with this one? And, and do we think this is for real? Is it, is it um, something that's likely to happen?
5: So this was their annual global fintech report where they survey uh, 1,300 financial executives from different areas in finance, also asset management insurance. And they found that more people are now concerned that fintech might hurt their revenues. And the people that they surveyed would be around 24% of revenues that are at risk. So they don't really break it down into much detail exactly how that's calculated, but that was the general figure that was in there, which I thought was interesting. Because I think at this point, it's kind of evident that fintech will have an impact, but it's, I think, also interesting to see how it will actually impact the bottom line of, of the Big companies in the industry. You
3: no, know, it's it's very interesting that um, execs are starting to believe this now, and, and is it really going to impact those companies? Um, there's also something about uh, kind of eighty-two percent of them saying more collaboration is going to be their defense. Is, is is collaborating with fintechs alone a, a valid defense here, or, or do do we do we think we need to see more?
5: I think they need to do more on their own. I mean, and also it's easier, I think, to say that they want to collaborate than to actually collaborate. And there's so many issues that slow them down. They, they kind of point to cultural differences and um, regulation as one of the big hurdles. But I think maybe they're downplaying the challenges posed by legacy technology and what it means to kind of integrate the newer trendy stuff with their slow back offices.
3: The realities of that are certainly uh, non-trivial. As as people try that integration piece, it's nice to want to work with something. It's definitely much much harder to to get it working.
5: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, another interesting thing was that they 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 talked about blockchain, which stood out there because it was kind of a broader broader piece. But they they mentioned that like seventy seven percent of respondents thought that they will their companies will have some sort of blockchain. Running within their firm by 2020, which I think was again quite optimistic. So it's generally a very pro optimistic fintech report. Hmm.
3: Interesting that, uh, yeah, perhaps it's uh, a sign of uh, maybe people saying what they should be saying or saying what they, they need <laughs> yeah. to say for the market and they don't want to be behind the market. It's kind of like uh, when, when you survey people on certain things about service, different cultures ha- answer things and uh, give give different scores. Famously, the yeah. uh, US are very strong on service and the Germans tend to rate it lower or more honestly, whichever way you would mm-hmm. would choose to look at it. So um, It's definitely um, something that might be cultural in uh, banking at the moment to say, yes, we're going to do all the things with fintech because we think we should, whether or not they actually follow through with that is an interesting question.
5: Yeah, and we are seeing more, well, at least one that I can recall now mentioning fintech within kind of their shareholder um, letters and calls. So Jamie Dimon this week in his shareholder mentioned that they were going to do um, continue with fintech collaboration and they listed some of the things that they were up to. And this was certainly not something that you would see like say four or five years ago. Whereas now it's actually something that I guess they want their shareholders and their analysts.
3: No, that's very true. If, if, if it starts to become the story you're telling to the market, then the market starts to um, expect to hear it. Um, and then that starts to affect share prices. And then it does become something that becomes more strategic inside an organization. So um, something that maybe we'll see more of. Already, righty, uh, Ana Herrera from uh, Reuters. Thank you very much for being on Fintech Insider News. Cool. Thank you very much, Anna.
0: Uh, moving on to do the next one, then. So we have a article in Finextra. This is FCA vows to tackle fraud on lost and stolen contactless cards. Seems like quite an interesting one for the FCA to sort of step into. Um, what do you guys think about this one?
6: Tell me about my gran, because Ali, tell me about your gran. Yeah. Yeah. she sounds wonderful. She, uh,
0: my gran, every Christmas for the last two
6: Christmases has given me one of those little contactless uh, defensive card things to put it in. Aww. And the first time I saw her take out her her bank card, I kid you not, she unwrapped it from silver foil because she was so paranoid <laughs> That's amazing. Um, of actually getting someone coming up and you know swiping and, and taking the money off. So she wraps it up and then sends out the little uh, the
3: little card thing. But hey, you're talking to a guy with a tape over his webcam, so ah,
6: uh, <laughs> uh, you, you want one of uh, one of these ones?
0: Wow, we're, oh, we're dealing you're with one. Oh, yeah, the the two most paranoid people ever. Like, what are you doing that somebody couldn't see it? Like, that's the worrying thing. So. We have to use that laptop too, Simon. That's what yeah. I'm saying. <laughs> um, I, I kind of think the so that, that is an interesting point because my my mum uses Monzo and she uses it with the freezed feature on mostly for exactly that reason. So so I think it's an interesting one that the FCA are, are kind of looking to step in on an item that arguably a lot of the challenger banks are coming in with almost like a default feature that fixes this problem.
6: I do think there's a bit of a generational thing as well because a lot of you know monzo for example monzo for example very much tailored to people that oh yeah you know i expect it to be contactless whereas obviously the fca have got to look at the entire uk ecosystem itself and again there's some people that are very i don't want to use the word paranoid but they want to have that that level of choice of whether or not they they have contactless and obviously there is an
4: element of fraud around that so that's obviously why the fca is coming in saying what they're saying i think i think on that point when when contactless cars first came out the younger generation was so much keener to to get on board and say okay great now we can just buy stuff by tapping our card everywhere and i don't think there was necessarily uh something going on saying okay well perhaps this is maybe a bit more dangerous perhaps maybe there's some security risks but with your gran this is this is the thing that she's got to look at like they're trying to maybe perhaps if i lose my card i've lost all my my money well she was
0: clearly very concerned because she bought it you two years in a row so uh, <laughs> you
4: know good good looking out nana
7: patterson so what do you think richard well i mean th- th- I mean, I love contactless, but I mean, I never check my bank balance. So th- I think that's the problem: is that I go back through even a week's worth of statements, and I think probably thirty or forty transactions contactless. I don't take the receipt. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen anyone at the at the checkout take the receipt that's offered to them. And I think that that's really difficult then for a customer to even remember anything that they spent or what it was or when it was. Uh, and so I guess one of the challenges that you know the likes of Monzo are addressing is that. More detailed transaction information that kind of rejigs your memory. Um, probably didn't for you guys last night, but um, you know it, it means that you start to sort of reconfirm the transaction that you've made in your head, or you can sort of validate that you were there and were present. But like business banking reconciliation, that would be <laughs> uh, an
0: interesting one to do.
7: Yeah,
1: but I th- I think in in this case, if I'm correct, they talk about. Um, fraud which happens when a customer is not present so this is the biggest part of fraud even after NFC appeared for for whatever reason and the amazing new thing that they want to implement is that they want to stop the transactions from being debited to the customer for the cards which have been cancelled already and you would think Don't you do this already? And apparently, (laughs) uh, not. So, this is, yeah, exactly. Uh, So, they want to force uh, uh, the banks which don't have this amazing functionality to to do it.
3: So, wait, let me get this straight. If I've cancelled my card, a bank will still approve transactions through that card until
6: it
0: expires. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. The article says eight months. Yeah, Yeah. eight months.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Which is
0: insane. Absolutely insane. How
1: did I not know this? (laughs) Because, yeah, as you said, nobody goes in minute detail in the, I mean, some people do, but many don't. Yeah.
0: Uh, until now. I'm pretty sure everybody who's listening at this point will be uh, checking through <laughs> all those old
7: cards. <laughs> For here, eight right? eight yeah. Months, yeah. yeah. Well, and there's a degree of flippancy with the transaction, I think, from the customer. In, in a good way. It, fr- frictionless, I guess, in a lot of respects. But you don't look at the terminal. So, you know, you're not kind of putting the, the card into the machine and, and manually putting the pin in. and. You know, even, you, know, you see some of the skimmers that are out there these days, and you've seen there's some fantastic models that, um, you know, sit on top of the POS terminal that even, the, you know, the merchant's not aware of. Um, and so I guess unless you've got that kind of physical interaction and tactileness with the device, you can't really tell whether something's, you know, original manufacturer or not.
0: It's pretty terrifying as well, because the, the advice used to be to sort of cut your card up. But, like, I guess even then, potentially, where the chip is and what you could do... Yeah. If you don't get through the antenna, it could still be used as well, right? So, like, what? What? How do you dispose of contactless cards these days?
6: Well, on the on that note, uh, I was fortunate enough to do an interview with the COO of a very large building society. His uh, that narrows it down. Thank uh, you. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> Actually, it, it was a really, really good thing. He's, uh, his son uh, went out and said, "I want an HSBC account because he realised that, uh, or one of his friends realised, if you take the HSBC card for whatever reason back in the day, their card manufacturers and put it in uh, nail varnish." You can actually pop the, chin out, the chip out, and they were sticking it under their watches. This is a sort of pre Apple Watch to then go and make contactless payments. There's a
7: guy. If oh, you look at, there's a guy that's sewn one into his wrist, the uh, chip into the wrist. Oh, yeah, that's... so it's sort of semi cyborg. Wow, that is commitment to speak, into into your bank, right? We <laughs> yeah. we talk
0: about sort of restrictions to switching accounts, but if I've literally sewn an, <laughs> <laughs> an NFC chip into my hand, that's really that's yeah, permanent. Isn't isn't it? It? He's going to have to
3: replace that every two years.
1: Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That was a guy for as well.
6: Your bank, yeah. We're doing the underground with the magic, with the magician's wand, and just tapping it. Oh, I saw that. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm.
7: very it's nice. Uh, but
0: as they say, moving on. I think probably is a, a good point in this one. <laughs> so we we have a uh, another piece in the news in the Asian Age, and this is hackers using disappearing malware to steal eight hundred thousand from ATMs. This is, looks quite uh, like an interesting story. Andrew, what do you think?
1: <laughs> I, I think it's. Um, I mean. Malware disappears. <laughs> it would be stupid to leave it there with uh, identity details or anything. It, it's interesting how it works on, on ATMs. Uh, so what happened was that hackers from Russia, apparently, uh, hacked to uh, Russian banks. And they instructed the ATMs to deliver the cash uh physically with an amazing speed so in 20 minutes each atm machine would spit around 100000 us dollars equivalent um, and the only thing remaining on the machine was a piece, all a log. Take the money, bitch, which apparently was a message appearing for the, uh, for those who turn up to pick up the money. And the message appeared on the on on the screen. So it was uh, like. It
3: huh. Feels like some Darren Brown thing, you know, where somebody's been hypnotized to go turn up in an ATM that's emptied itself, and they're all hypnotized, and then they drive a van, and then they. It's just. <laughs> so-
1: yeah, so they filmed this, so they've they've seen. I mean, they've seen on the CCTV cameras, um, but the, otherwise there is no other trace, then the message and the film. And um,
3: so this comes <laughs> on the back of the um, Swift hack that happened in the Bangladeshi central bank. And there's uh, rumors of state-sponsored actors there. And then now we're getting you know, people attacking the systemic infrastructure, uh, it appears here. Because if they haven't done it physically, if they haven't gone into the device itself, they've come in through the network. And if they've come in through the network, they've probably compromised some node in that network. And by node in that network, it's probably a member bank and a member organization uh, that's been compromised. So it makes you think that uh, you know the responsibilities that these organisations have is phenomenal, but also that they do wield massive power if if anybody can get access to them. And cybersecurity is more important than ever. Still, this th- this thing has kind of a movie vibe about it, right? It's it's yeah, got a kind exactly. of Ocean's Twelve it, feel.
1: It reminded me of, uh, of a um, story, a real story, and it was also a movie about Stuxnet. If you have seen or heard oh, about Stuxnet's it,
3: Stuxnet's incredible. That,
1: uh, com- considerably more complex, you know, to influence the infrastructure of a very secure nuclear plant. But uh, here with the ATM, it, it, the logic is the same. It, the interaction between software and physical... Um, so Stuxnet, if it's you it's haven't not heard
3: similar. of it, uh, folks that are listening, check that out on youtube and um, this is like a seven eight minute video about stuxnet and this was a piece of malware that was written put out into the internet affected hundreds of thousands if not millions of machines but it would only wake up when it realized it was on a specific type of terminal and specific type of device uh, and then eventually it realized it had gotten there and then it would wake up and it was designed to uh, deal with that one specific thing and shut down A specific part of nuclear. But even then, it didn't just shut it down. It would um, make the readouts on the terminals appear incorrect so that they actually overheated, but they um, appeared correct to the people that were using it. It's really clever stuff. But now that code is out in the wild for anybody to see. So, yeah, it's an interesting question as to whether people are using that malware. And it's an interesting question as to um, how well are organizations protecting themselves and prepared for this sort of thing. Do they even know about this kind of stuff? Because that stuff's out there.
6: One thing that's interesting on this story is it says uh, there's actually no uh, trace left behind apart from this, the, the, the thing saying, take my money, bitch. Apart from that, there was no uh, logs, no visible way of, of actually getting in the system. So it's likely they're probably
0: going to do it again somewhere else. Nice. Sounds like a good system. Oceans Twelve was good, but definitely Oceans Eleven was the one my favourite. Prov- I don't know. Yeah, why. I if I you were going to pick up on it. That. Yeah, that was that was intentional Indeed, trolling. Yeah. You've got the female it.
6: remake coming out next year as well. Indeed, sounds good. Oceans Fourteen.
0: Next up, we have a a article in Quartz, and this is how you can set up a VPN in ten minutes for free feels like increasingly on all sides of uh, the, the water we're sort of needing this, both in the UK and over in the States. But this is some change in legislation over in, in the US where ISPs can now legally do all sorts of quite terrifying things with your data. Uh, have you guys looked at this one?
7: Yeah, and um, obviously it's a complete shift from I think where they were a couple of weeks ago. The, the big challenge here, I think, for the consumer is that it's, it's how far this message gets articulated down to the everyday user because I think you've got the kind of followers of this kind of headline that will really understand what that means in terms of data and privacy and access. But um, I guess the math vast majority of the US public, they probably won't react too much and really realise what that means in terms of data interference and, and what's being exposed out to, to the world, essentially. Well, so a few of the things
0: that they're, they're now potentially able to do, it according to this article, is sell your browsing history to basically any corporation or government that wants to buy it, which sounds terrifying. Hijack your searches and share them with third parties. Monitor all of your traffic by injecting their own malware-filled ads into the websites that you visit. Stuff undetectable, undeletable, tracking cookies onto all of your non-encrypted traffic, pre-install software on phones that will monitor all traffic, even secure traffic, and before it all gets in- encrypted and actually sent to any of the the vendors that you're using. So those five things alone sound terrifying, doesn't it? Like oh, You wonder why we cover up our cameras. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm with you guys now. It's,
3: it, it, it's as simple as that. I mean, it, it is as simple as, like... you now have to protect yourself online. And I think for a long time, I mean, Andrew will know this, that um, there's been ways for man-in-the-middle attacks to affect uh, online banking and um, mobile app banking. So if you were using public Wi-Fi and you weren't using a VPN, then you were kind of, uh, you were taking your life into your own hands and people were getting hacked on on that basis quite regularly. Uh, So this is kind of the thing that where I sense, we're saying that you guys should go download your own VPN. There needs to be a service here. There needs to be some sort of consumer advocacy in terms of actually looking after the consumer and doing it because I to Ali's point about his own gran, she was doing very well with the contactless sticker but would she do it with the contactless card but what's the equivalent of foil? What's the really easy hack for somebody to just get this? And there are plenty of good services out there that will do it for a small fee um, and that make it really really simple that as soon as your laptop or phone boots that the service starts mm. and, and it works but if you don't know where you're looking and you don't know why you need to do it it's, it's a real challenge.
7: And the problem with the ISPs is that in, in the state in some instances, some states only have access to one. You only have one choice someone one provider, and I think, and perhaps I'll discredit and name the wrong company, but I think it was Comcast already providing internet with a built-in cookie that you couldn't delete, that already tracked all the information. And I think the ISPs have argued now, this is their whole point around this, is that, well, Facebook and Google have got access to data, so we're doing nothing different to what they're doing. That's the point that they, they put towards the government. And, lo and behold you know new leadership a, a new way of thinking
3: but what's interesting is that facebook and google um and especially apple have been pushing back on government requests for data quite publicly um and and probably quite a bit more privately whereas the isps won't. the isp selling point here is well we've been selling you data forever for on everything you want to see um give us this access and you'll get to see everything you want to see on on a terrorism standpoint um but it, i think it was um there's an abraham lincoln quote and i'm going to butcher it but something like if it's liberty or security i'd take liberty every single day and i'd be willing to sacrifice a little bit of security for it and and we seem to have lost that in in society a certain degree but that's philosophical moment for the day over yeah. Wow. Deep. Deep for like hangover deep. That was that was good. That was hangover deep. But I think from um, a banking perspective, like you, potentially your financial transactions can be seen by anybody and exploited. And that's, you know, again, if I'm in a consumer advocacy group, do I want my ISP um, exploiting my financial transactions? Not saying they are, not saying they
0: would, but they could. Well, well the the point around tracking is one thing. So like the ability to see what was happening, but the ability to actually inject things into the journeys and the websites that you're actually visiting. That's just bizarre. You know, that's pretty aggressively going after revenue from other people in terms of where they're going. So it's kind of like the ISPs don't get paid for providing a service to people.
3: I think the position they're in is they're looking for value add, right? So they, they got disrupted in 2006, 7, 8, especially in 2008. And the over-the-top players came in, um, especially after uh, the iPhone. Uh, Facebook, Google, and, and Apple really came in and just kind t- of took their lunch away from them. And they saw like a real revenue dip, a top-line dip, that they just never got back. And they've been searching for relevance ever since. And they are now dumb pipes. And they don't want to be dumb pipes. And this actually, they've been lobbying consistently for about a decade to try and get some angle back in and they've been looking at do they move into financial services do they move into advertising do, and they've not done any of it well uh, and this is the first win they've had in quite some time.
4: I think that the sad side effect of this legislation is that it puts people in a bit of a state of fear and it puts people on the defensive and of course people need to educate themselves about how to protect themselves online and you guys have got your you know your cameras covered up and you know there's plenty of ways to do it but actually just being put in that on the back seat and say, okay, I've actually got to protect myself from uh, these institutions is not a good place to be. It's a bit like 1984 being actualized in It creates an adversarial relationship,
3: doesn't it? And and do you want to be adversarial with the service provider that you're paying to serve you or should they be authentically trying to serve you and not trying to uh, exploit you? And, and this does feel like a push towards exploitation now you could argue that the um, the people who sell advertising data about you have been doing that all along Facebook Google and others but there's something about either their positioning or the trust that they've built where it just doesn't come across quite as creepy they, they seem to be able to come across honest and upfront about it where people understand the bargain they seem to be able to put the uh, they themselves put the disclaimers in about we'd like these permissions this app would like these permissions so that being kind of on the front foot side of it seems to make more sense versus where just going to lobby we're going to win it and then we're not going to tell you what we're going to do and we're not going to communicate to you there's a communication gap there Mm -hmm. and i wonder if there's a role for financial services to play here, because from a financial services perspective, their traditional business model actually does start to now make sense, which is if you go right back to the beginning of banking, it was a safety deposit box. This was where you put your stuff that you want nobody else to see and that you really value and you don't want stolen. In this day and age, what's more valuable than your digital identity and your data trail? Um, And protecting that has been something that banks have been trying to do for four or five years. They've done quite a few identity schemes. They've not quite got it right. But from a proposition standpoint, it's starting to make more and more sense if they could. I know Barclays launched Cloudit, for instance, and there's I've seen a few others like it. But like a mass market proposition along those lines, I think would actually go pretty far for again your grand's generation, Ali, who who probably trust their
0: bank. Yeah, I think this this I- I- idea of an organisation being able to sort of protect your identity. Uh, you know, while you're on the internet is going to be definitely sort of an increasing sort of shield, isn't it, against all of this
3: It's just whether or not banks then want to be in a position where the government's coming in asking for access to your identity um, when they're already having to do a lot in terms of financial
0: transactions. Indeed, it gets quite complicated. Uh, And speaking of which, there's a really interesting story up next on The Next Web. So this is Amazon Cash Eliminates Need for Bank Cards thought this was quite interesting. Did you guys take a look at this one?
1: We, we have quite some stories about Amazon um, uh, today. Uh, not only this one. This is a, a good move for financial inclusion, I believe. Um, because uh, the only other option for somebody without a, a card to make purchases on Amazon would have been to buy himself, herself, a gift card, which is quite uh, depressing, I'd say. Um, so this is more inclusive. As I understand, this is now only in the US, in a number of um, shops in the US. You can go and upload cash in your Amazon account directly. So you're able to do purchases and um, on Amazon. I think it's pretty cool.
3: It's Straight out of the Alipay playbook. Um, This is exactly what Alipay did with um, uh, Alibaba. Um, So you've got a large online retail store with a marketplace um, and you have a a kind of a a whole market full of people who don't necessarily have bank accounts. So how do you get them to have uh, digital cash? Well, you create a a network of retailers who can accept um, cash and in return give you sort of barcodes as, as a type of payment. And that's pretty much how Alipay got its start. That that progression into then providing new services is is quite interesting. Now, I don't know that Amazon are going to do this at anywhere near the same scale because they're in a very different market. But from a financial inclusion standpoint, it's worked in other markets. Interesting one to watch. And again, I, I echo your sentiment, Andrew, it makes sense. Let's see if they do it in other markets and let's see if they do it more. Because if they do, this could be an interesting wedge product for a wallet type piece, which we've been waiting for Amazon to do and they haven't really done. Yeah,
1: and especially I was thinking in markets where Amazon doesn't have a, a presence like here in UK, or but people want from other countries to buy from Amazon. And because of the card fraud, this is always a problem. If you establish the network where people put money in a shop, so physical money they put in, in, in their account, uh, then this is somehow mitigated. Because if you pay for that thing, for sure you want to deliver to yourself, not to somebody else. So yeah, it's a solution like this for other markets. Yeah,
4: yes, it's it's a great way of, well, shortcutting the unbanked problem. So getting to those people who aren't banked, don't have financial services and saying, okay, we're not going to wait until the banks solve this problem. We're just going to find some way of enabling them to shop on our platform. But in countries like the UK, I can't imagine people going through the arduous task of going into the shop and sending up this extra account and Paying like that, I think that the fraud risk probably wouldn't be enough to make me do that personally. Uh, I, I suspect we, I, I, I don't know. I
3: don't know. I, I'm going to be controversial and disagree with you and say, I think we'd see some demand. I think you'd see it, especially in the social welfare sectors and uh, the low income groups. Uh, people that their only choice at the moment is Argos and Brighthouse um, and paying for things on the never never and layaway and, and kind of taking on a lot of debt would probably like access to an Amazon marketplace where they can get things at a reasonable price, um, especially if they're living a lot of their life cash hand. Now, will that be successful? Will it get scale? I don't know. Is um, there an
7: age restriction on the service? So, I mean, in terms of, you know, children as well, you kind of see the story of, you know, that's pocket money or Christmas money coming in and being able to pay for that items that you'd otherwise have limited access to.
0: That's an interesting idea. It doesn't say in this article. One want, want to watch, definitely. And not the only story, as you say, Andrew, that we've got from, from Amazon. So this is one on Finextra. Visa and top UK banks get behind launch of Amazon business, which is quite an interesting one. So obviously, um, you know, there's the, the old sort of At some point in the future, all you're going to see in your statement is PayPal and Amazon and and whatnot and no real data. And what this is, is actually enhanced transactional data being made available to Barclay Card City, HSBC and Lloyds Bank. Um, So giving like full basket-level data to those people to really start enriching that um, statement experience for people. So seems like a sensible thing to do. I wonder why Amazon are giving this away, though. That was the bit that I was struggling with in here.
3: I think it's to grow their marketplace, isn't it? Like, they want more small businesses on their marketplace. The banks want more transactions at those small businesses, and from the banks, they can probably say, hey, here's some enhanced reconciliation with Amazon that makes you sticky for us. I don't know if that last piece really makes sense. I don't know what the value prop for the banks is um on the small businesses side that that's the piece that's missing for me, but so, that, that.
1: Um, usually the um, services for small businesses is not are, are not very developed in in the large banks. So whatever you can do to help them manage their business better, I think it's a it's a bonus.
0: and they're saying a hundred million products will be available to these companies when they sign up. that's terrifying scale that amazon has got now isn't it
1: yeah but it's like when you go to amazon it's not terrifying because it's a very long tail so you look at whatever whatever interests you i think the point is if you move your purchasing function to amazon and as a company small company small medium company you can purchase only from amazon it it's it's a bonus for them. It's an yeah.
3: interesting idea because then what you're saying is, like, as a small company, we're going to buy all of our laptops, all of our screens, all of our technology equipment or, or anything we need in terms no, of office stationery, all yeah. that kind of stuff from Amazon. And as a result of doing that, because we're buying it with our corporate card from City or Barclays or whoever it is, then we don't have to do any admin over the top of it because we've got all the data there and it reconciles yeah. a lot better. You can kind of see that being quite neat, actually, especially with how much you spend on Amazon, David.
0: I know. I'm sort of almost coming to the conclusion we got there first on this one just by nature of pretty much everything you can see in this room was bought on Amazon, unfortunately. So, uh, But uh, yeah, maybe we'll move to this soon. Let's hear from our sponsors.
4: The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical Mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest,
7: most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
8: 11FS, pulse update.
7: Hi, this is Ross from 11FS. And this is
9: Megan from 11FS.
7: In today's 11FS
0: Pulse update, we look to Norway and a payments app called Vips. Megan, how did Vips start
7: off?
9: Well, Vips was developed by DNB and launched in May of 2015. And even though it was developed by DNB, it was available to customers of any bank in Norway. And around 40% of the users actually weren't DNB customers. About a month ago, DNB actually opened up the platform to the other Norwegian banks. So while DNB will still have a majority stake in Vips, um, the other banks can get involved. And this was largely a move to counter off foreign competition um, from other propositions like mobile pay which is coming out of Denmark and the likes of Apple and the other consumer giants before they make a play to the Norwegian market.
0: And getting into the service itself, users of the app what can they do?
9: Oh well there's a lot they can do. In addition to sending money to anyone via their mobile number super quickly uh, and paying merchants there's some nice little features that we think put VIPs above and beyond the typical peer-to-peer payment app. This includes the option to receive a notification when the nominated debit card is set to expire. Uh, they can receive bills to the VIPs app which they can then pay within the app and there's even this really cool social aspect where you can chat with people that you have made a payment to.
0: And I believe that there's some
7: neat third party integrations. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those?
9: Sure. Uh, So you can actually pay with VIPs in third party apps such as the Oslo Transport app. So if you need to buy a bus ticket you can pop into that app, pay with VIPs and then in a few seconds and a few clicks uh, you've bought a bus ticket with VIPs
0: nice thanks very
7: much for that megan and if listeners want to find out more and actually see payments being made and how these integrations work where should they go
9: they can head over to our website at 11fs.com and look up 11fs pulse On there you can play back this and hundreds of other end-to-end digital banking journeys from traditional and challenger brands from all around the world
0: Thanks for that 11FS pulse update, Megan and Ross. And now back on with the news. So the next story that we have is on TechCrunch. So this is WhatsApp will reportedly launch peer-to-peer payments in India within the next six months. That sounds like pretty big deal. I think it's
3: a huge deal. Um, and what they're saying here is they're working with WhatsApp plans to use UPI, a cross-bank payment system backed by the government, to begin to enable payments between users in the next six months. This UPI, as best I know, is not Paytm. And Paytm, which is a separate service, um, the kind of more more kind of private service, has been invested in heavily by Alipay. So now we are finally seeing a a war for the payments, uh, kind of uh, peer-to-peer payments space in India. So Alipay did really well in China, is trying to expand regionally and sees India as its next mega market. Um, And this is like Facebook paying a playing a proper hand to try and win that. And it's interesting that it's um, a cross-bank payment system backed by the government. It's almost like if WhatsApp worked with uh, PayM here in the UK. Like, how good is that cross-bank payment system? we probably have to speak to somebody locally to to, to get a feel of it. But for me, that kind of uh, mega uh, East versus West, um, kind of mega uh, tech company battle for peer-to-peer payments is super interesting.
0: Yeah, it's. Do you think, though, potentially this one, given all of the sort of demonetization and everything that's happened, and obviously there's been a a real rise of of mobile payments out there, they're sort of jumping on the bandwagon after it's left to a certain degree.
7: Yeah, and I think you know they they stopped the subscription model. You know, it was only a dollar or so um, last year, I think it was. And so you know they're they're under pressure given a twenty two billion dollar acquisition to try and find ways to monetize the proposition a bit better. And you know, India is. Yeah, as you say, they took away large-denominated banknotes. The problem of you know laundering and counterfeit and, and all sorts of uh, underhand ways of dealing with cash. Um, and I think that this is probably just you know the government have leaned in and supported digital payments, you know, to try and reduce down some of those counterfeit measures. So you know, it's a, I think it's a combination of pressure from WhatsApp to try and monetize, um, expand into a market where it's growing incredibly quickly, and you know they've got government support as well.
3: There's another local messaging app. Uh, hike, which raised money from Tencent at a billion dollar valuation, so you've also got WeChat in the picture, not just Alipay. Um, so there's pr- there's at least a three-horse race, um, and it's one to watch because there you've got uh, hundreds of millions of potential users. WhatsApp also talk about uh, they're, they're also reportedly testing a business search feature with a handful of selected companies, so it's not just going to be peer-to-peer payments, they're definitely trying to uh, create that merchant model as well, where you can use these payments uh, types to to make you know retail customer payments. So it's part of that demonetization piece. uh, I think the government's trying to be encouraging to everybody um, and and encouraging to the market. um, But it's interesting how these these mega tech companies are are approaching that.
4: I think the interesting thing here is that WhatsApp doesn't have the challenge that a lot of new fintechs have, which is building trust, building a customer base. They've already got 200 million users and they're going to be able to roll this out to that user base. I don't know if anyone else here uses Circle, but I love Circle, I use it religiously, but the hardest thing is getting my other friends to sign up to it, getting them to trust this app and say, okay, this is how we're going to pay each other back when we go for a meal, is more trouble than it should be. And I think with WhatsApp, we're not going to find that problem. They've already got the users. so. If they roll out globally, it could go very fast.
0: Yeah, they they definitely have the the biggest community, isn't it? And it's about sort of leveraging that community for all different angles, isn't it? So exciting. Next up, we've actually got another payment story on payments.com without the A's and the E's, as always they do. Will you look at a mobile wallet adoption piece here, looking at where we are after two and a half years of of sort of pushing. So Simon, you talked to Yoni Levy, didn't you? The Director of Strategy and New Business Development, Payments Innovation at CIBC. So let's have a listen to that now.
3: Great. So I'm speaking to Yoni Levy, who's the Director of Strategy and New Business Development for Payments Innovation at CIBC. Yoni, good to have you on FinTech Insider News.
8: Thank you for having me and congratulations on the your
3: anniversary oh thank you you're too kind Yoni. uh okay so um the story here in payments.com is talking about uh, mobile wallet adoption top line summary it's steady but small decreases in people even trying apple pay uh, people who have apple pay it's roughly constant uh, around four percent usage uh, for the last two and a half years I'm, I'm assuming this is all in point of sale what, what are your thoughts on, on this particular report yoni um, and what are your thoughts on the state of mobile payments in general
8: you know interesting that you bring this up I was at an innovation project conference hosted by uh, Karen Webster from uh, she's the CEO at paymentscom and, and she revealed this study at that conference uh, live on a panel titled have mobile payments lost their way and and you know there's rep there was representation from Google and from Samsung at that panel sort of the reaction to this was interesting but a common theme across the entire conference was sort of the, the thinking about mobile payments and and it, it being one of the most Kind of overrated topics out there. Google at the conference immediately pointed out, you know, it's a U.S.-based study. It only takes into account point of sale, and so they had seen, you know, more promising results in other more N- uh, NFC mature markets. And so Canada being an example, Android Pay is not in Canada yet, but other other more mature NFC markets were something where they where they saw better results. You know, even, even leading beyond that, Samsung brought up a, an interesting perspective. They talked about. Um, really, the, the industry as a whole needing to think about working together, standardizing specs, trying to grow the the mobile payments industry as a whole. Similar to how you know the payment networks aligned when they developed tokenization model and the the the, the specs required for that. Instead of trying to independently chase small PR stories and, and individual mer- merchant partnerships that aren't exactly scalable, there's an opportunity for the industry to work together as a whole. And so for me, that was kind of the the interesting sound bites. The stats are sort of underwhelming. You know, it's still a small niche segment. Um, you know, for CIBC, I think I could say that um, we're focused on removing the barriers for needing the right device. And if customers want to use their phone, we want to be the bank that lets them do it. Um, but if they prefer to use their plastic, we're okay with that too. And so we sort of play an interesting role in figuring out, you know, how much do we need to specifically push mobile payments.
7: I
3: think that's the thing, Yoni. If the consumer has spoken and said, this mechanism is kind of cool, but doesn't interest me and doesn't fit my lifestyle, then you as a bank are going to support whatever they need. But then, you know, this this report feels to me like a lot of mobile payments reports, um, like it's missing the real story here, which is that mobile payments are doing phenomenally well if you look outside of physical retail. If you look at Apple Pay in-app purchases, and if you look at general in-app purchases and mobile commerce, in other words, people buying things through the Amazon app and and other retailers, payments are really up and the experiences there are largely merchant led it's either led by the itunes store or it's led by apple pay or it's led by amazon and and i guess that uh, as an experience from a consumer can be quite nice from a bank's perspective so long as that's kind of all secure and and great it is pretty nice but to your point about standardization um should we be focusing on standardizing more in 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 that direction or is there value to be gained if we were able to standardize on on the physical point of sale um purchases because because i don't know that there is but but maybe
8: there is I think, first of all, to, to hit on the, your first point, I think the e-commerce angle to this is, is certainly the more uh, promising one long term, and I think we've seen some, some great results here in Canada uh, with respect to our Apple Pay launch. And you know, there's certainly a large group of customers that love using it, and those who use it use it regularly. I think the standardization approach again. I'll, I'll going back to the conference. Uh, you know, relationships and collaboration were, were a key topic that seemed to come up again and again at this innovation conference. Al Kelly from Visa talked about it. Dan Schulman talked about it. And sort of the idea that one firm, you know, one monolithic approach to, to becoming a big player in mobile payments is, is sort of destined for failure. And so when I think of standardization, I think it's more about how do we make it easy for consumers and for merchants to understand how do they set up the their, themselves up for success with each of these different payment mechanisms. If each of these companies go at it alone and they try to do things a little bit differently, it, it sort of leaves the, the key stakeholders customers and merchants kind of confused about what do i need to do to participate and so that's that's where i think there's an opportunity for some standardization
3: makes total sense yoni yoni thank you for being with us on fintech insider news
8: thanks for having me
0: Thanks very much for that, Yoni. Um, Moving on to the next one. This is a story about OCBC Bank. So using the AI-powered chatbot to answer home and renovation loan queries, which was pretty amazing in terms of actually the numbers that we were sort of seeing in here. So wasn't it something like 25,000... Uh, conversations kicked off in the in the first few days of this actually being put in, put live so again chatbots being used to uh, really sort of start powering the uh, frontline conversations with customers what do you guys think i wonder how many people used it and did not realize they were talking to a robot that's the uh the irony of
6: that
1: yeah. situation yeah a yeah. yeah. high proportion i would uh, i would bet i like the fact that they went and did this because Really, many banks have been um, approached by AI uh, technology companies trying to, to emphasize the, the, the role of this chat box and how useful they could be, actually. One story is that somebody told me how they managed to sell this to a, to a bank was uh, to to compare with telephony and say something like, uh, you know, in telephony, you go through a, a range of options at the beginning to qualify the type of uh, question that the client has. And with this, you save a lot of time from human interaction. The, the guy is telephony. But while you are in a chat box, if you talk with a real person, it takes 10 minutes to figure out what they want. And that's a very expensive time. So this is when the bank adopted finally the, the uh chat box implementation. As for their approach here, it's it's an interesting one. There are different ways of teaching a chat box or training a chat box to answer questions and it seemed to me like that they went uh, narrow and deep. So basically they have selected a type of product which is uh, very clearly defined and they Taught the machine um, in depth the the uh, the knowledge about those products, so they could uh, efficiently uh, address the challenges. So the questions. So I really like it. Yeah,
0: I think it's a, a a really really interesting one in terms of kind of where they're going. And they were saying in this particular instance in terms of emma which was the chatbot that they in- installed that nine out of ten customers were satisfied with the assistance that were that was actually rendered by emma and more than 10 percent of those chat sessions actually converted into a mortgage which feels like an astounding level of, of conversion so yeah potentially chatbots far better at converting uh, mortgage loans than than human beings which is terrifying right
1: Yes, why or at not? least selling because them. For sure, they have a hundred percent of the information, uh, and they have it accessible. For them, is not a range of memory. Do I remember this or where is this document? Do yeah. we have this? No, it hundred percent accessible. Yeah. yeah, with the same uh, probability of you know being found, retrieved, and provide the the right information immediately. So I think that's yeah, I good. I take
6: it Emma's got all the information on that individual customer and is learning constantly how that person reacts.
1: Uh, ideally, yes. I don't know in this case if they use this. I th- if they use this information, um, if the, if the bot um, has access also to the customer information in detail. Yeah, it's a choice actually.
0: Mm. I guess the the point where you can actually start seeing and we, You know, we've talked about artificial intelligence a number of times before, but at the point where they can actually see the impact over time of the advice that they're giving as well, then it starts to be pretty intelligent, doesn't it? In terms of the not only the uh, obviously in medical terms the the sort of prescription that they're given but the actual reaction to the prescription that, that that's been taken so it'll be uh, interesting to see how this one evolves over time the more data these things get the better they are aren't they and the next story that we've got up is on the register so this is um sad news for the australian banks who were uh, sort of quite uh, fearlessly fighting Apple as they do every week on the show. So Banking Group denied access to iPhone's NFC chips. Um, So this is the news that the regulator, so the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is quite hard to say with a hangover, I'll be honest, has unfortunately not allowed the four Australian banks wanting to gain access to the chips on iPhones. This is because they were essentially looking to set up their own um, NFC wallet and predominantly it looks like this was turned down um, not only because I'm sure Apple would have a massive hissy fit if this was passed in Australia, um, but because the uh, commission actually felt that the Australian organisations would unfortunately massively favour their wallets in this system in terms of what it was doing. So it would essentially be taking it from one massive monopoly trying to defend their own territory to another massive group of people who would want to defend their territory. A, a, so- a
3: massive monopoly that produced the device and got a bunch of people to buy that device with the chip inside it versus a bunch of uh, people who wanted to basically have first right on somebody else's device with somebody else's chip in it. So you can see why somebody's, I mean, neither of those options are great, but um, Well, at
0: least Apple went to the trouble of getting you to buy the phone. That's my point. They did some hard work, didn't they, to to make that happen. But it seems like this is probably the right thing for those guys to do. And is this potentially the the sort of final nail in the coffin for uh, the banks over in Australia to... Just get with the program and, and implement Apple Pay.
3: Stop trying to win at this one, guys. Like, just like fighting this is just throwing good money after bad. Um, think about where your profit centers are going to come from in the future. Think about what you want to be good at. Think about what you want to stop doing. Think about what you're not doing and focus there. Rather than like, there are things that you just know you're never going to win at. Like, or maybe you don't, but you you just it's bad in the short term on the PL that somebody's going to come in and take a bit of my interchange if there are any um, NFC transactions. Going through Apple Pay, but with the stats we saw, we heard earlier about where um, Apple Pay is really at. Then, you know, if if nobody's actually using this thing, then what's the harm? You, you get a bit of positive press out of it, and you don't really lose any interchange revenue because only what four percent of people are actually using it on a semi-regular basis, not even for all of their transactions.
0: Well, so so I guess the and we've talked about this before, and and maybe didn't necessarily cover it in purely the physical payment side of things. I think Apple Pay and, you know, Android Pay and whatnot are are not doing great. But, uh, you know, as I... Like bizarrely discovered, I'm using it twice a day to buy train tickets, and didn't even think that I was using it. So all of the in-app stuff, like you're saying, I guess, is a, a much bigger risk to these guys in terms of doing it. So um,
6: was that included in the sort of
0: one two percent? Don't think so. Um, but again, and it definitely wasn't when we were we looked at this previously in terms of some of the statistics. So
3: which which is interesting because when people look at mobile payments, they're not looking at mobile payments; they're looking at mobile contactless payments at a physical point of sale, which is actually only a very small sub upset. Uh, the, and, I, and to a point there, you know, what should banks do about the um, online payment space and the mobile payment space? Well, banks were disintermediated massively in the online payment space, not just with kind of card acquiring, but there was the whole companies like Cybersource and SagePay and all of these companies appeared and banks were like, they kind of shrugged their shoulders and some of them offer those services and others don't. and life went on. And I think that you will find these intermediaries that fill the gaps where banks haven't done it effectively. If you can get out there and you can do it really effectively, great. But I I think the horse has bolted on this one. The area where you can really start to do well is is in other areas. There's fertile soil in new business models. There's fertile soil in kind of um, collaborating with fintechs. There's fertile soil in other areas with consumers around taking cost out of the organization, this for me wouldn't be a strategic priority worth spending um, tens of millions of probably Australian dollars on that, that it looks like they're doing.
0: I wonder how much demand from the Australian public the banks are actually getting to implement Apple Pay. Because yeah. you know, if, if it's anything
3: like the UK, there was a very small vocal minority uh, of people who were really pushing the banks to do it. But that vocal minority tended to be on Twitter, tended to get access to journalists, and therefore you know had some impact. Probably a similar thing.
0: Mm. So if you're listening in Australia and you're really frustrated that your bank isn't giving you Apple Pay, feel free to get in touch with us. It would be really interesting to hear from you. The last story that we've got is kind of a weird one and not really a story, if I'm being honest with you. It was just a fun thing that we found on Facebook. In fact, actually, Simon, wasn't it your fiancé who put this one on Facebook?
3: God bless her, Harriet found this thing um, after having a day where she was really struggling with her uh, top four tier one UK bank, you know, UK High Street Bank's website, struggling to find her login details, struggling to log in. Uh, and she found this song that perfectly dealt with those feels. So if, if you've ever dealt with a user experience at a bank and hated it, then um, there's a song here by Louis Cole, the bank account song that we hope you enjoy.
0: And before we start playing that, because I'm sure you're looking forward to hearing this uh, as much as we have been playing it in the office all week, um, I'd like to say thank you very much to our guests. So, Richard, thanks very much for coming along. Really appreciate you taking the time.
7: Thank you for having me. Uh, Where can people learn a little bit more about you and find you online? Um... Best place to look is probably LinkedIn. So um, there's some new roles within my team coming out hopefully in the next couple of weeks. Um, so if anyone can bear working with me and wants to find out more, then um, yeah, find me on LinkedIn.
4: Good plug. Uh, Misho, where can people find out more about you? Thanks. Well, I've got a report out coming out in the Sunday Times on the 25th of April on the future of financial services. So I encourage you all to take a look, pick up a copy of the Sunday Times and also have a look on raconteur.net. And secondly, about me personally on LinkedIn. I'm sure you'll be able to find me off the back of this. Perfect.
0: And Ali, thanks very much for coming in. Where can people find out more?
4: Thank you very much.
6: I'm obviously at at Ali Patterson on Twitter. I've also got to plug a plugger magazine, got our latest version of FinTech Finance out with a uh, world exclusive with Justin Trudeau, which is a uh, definite career high, and I've got to brag about it while I can. Nice. Uh, it's free to subscribe and get a hard copy in the mail at fintech.finance.
0: Cool, very good magazine. Highly uh, recommend.
6: Superheroes in it as well. This one. There are
0: some awesome superheroes in there. I have to say. So before we wrap up, I'd like to thank one of our listeners, Rich, for writing us a lovely review on iTunes. Let's have a quick listen to that review.
7: An obvious five star. This week's news, in particular, illustrated why this is required listening for anyone working in or around fintech sharp analysis of emerging stories in the context of broader macro themes. This particular episode saw Chris Skinner's unique, funny, and unusual humour to the
1: fore.
0: Thanks for that, Rich. And I want to say a massive congratulations to the Monzo team who this week got their banking license. Well done, guys. We're really looking forward to seeing what comes next. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. So that's all for now. Back to Lewis Cole.